Investing legend Charlie Munger dead at 100 years old. He leaves an extensive legacy in the investing field and the world of finance. Welcome to Constable Confidential. I'm Simon Constable. Joining us from Charlotte, North Carolina is Christopher Pavis. He is President and Chief Investment Officer of Broyhill Asset Management. Thanks for joining us on your debut on Constable Confidential. It's lovely to have you. Thanks for having me, Simon. Great to connect. Charlie Munger, number two to Warren Buffett, and uh, which is an even bigger name, but they're both legends in their own way and very humble men. One of the things I learned over the last few days was that Ch Charlie Munger's, according to Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger's idea of luxury travel was an air-conditioned bus. So not a Ferrari, not a not a private jet. Tell us what you know about Charlie Munger and the legacy he left on Wall Street as a whole. Yeah, it's, it's the air-conditioned bus comments. I mean, it's a funny one. Um, we were as value investors who resonate, um, you know, resonate obviously a lot with Charlie and and, and Warren's thinking. Um, we may have taken that a step further. I was recently at a conference in in Dallas, and our analyst, who's located in Austin, made the trip on an unair-conditioned bus this summer, uh, which was not Ouch. necessarily by choice. Ooh. Ouch! <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the you know I, I think one of the things of the many things that Munger is is so widely known for is this idea and concept of developing a lattice work of mental models over the years. Um, and particularly in the investment industry, I think prior to Charlie and Warren being so widely read and known is, um, you know, we tend to silo and focus on our own little niches and, and it's very easy to get caught in that corner and just look at look through the world through that one particular lens that we've learned to look through our entire lives. Um, I think Charlie, more than anyone else, reminded us that it's important to you know, have a, you know, as he calls it, a much broader range of worldly wisdom. So, you know, having a, you know, having a construct of mental models across the major disciplines. So whether that's physics, whether that's biology, whether that's mathematics, um, psychology is a big one that he talks on, you know, he talks about over and over again. It's just, you know, it's just the concept of reading, reading widely and broadly and, you know, that's where creativity comes from, right? It comes from connecting ideas across disciplines. Um, and that's, I, I think, investing in large part is a creative endeavor. And he he said he read an awful lot, and it seems to have turned out well for him on the investing front. So here's, here's a statistic that I've, I have found over the last day. So during the period 1962 to 75, which I realize is ancient history now, but this is when he was really getting going, the the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose 5% annually on average, whereas he was getting compound returns of 19.8%. So something like four times as much, which is phenomenal. And I can see why Warren Buffett would want, want to work with him. <laughs> he, we also know that he read a lot. Is that something that all investors now go to? They say, well, if I'm going to be an investor, I need to read a lot. Or are some people still saying, well, okay, I've got my gut and I'll just go with it and I'll read an annual report and decide whether to do that? I, so it's a good question. I think 
I would guess, I can't speak for the industry as a whole. I would guess the majority of investors outside of right the the quant world, which is largely driven and, and is increasing focus on but, and know, the AI. Quant, the, the, quant, the quant world is basically a lot of very heavy duty computers doing a lot of work for the portfolio manager and then the portfolio manager using models within that to buy and sell shares. And broadly, am I, am I right? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes there might not even be a portfolio manager, right? It's just training machines to make decisions on investors' behalf, looking for relationships um, in data that may not be obvious to you or I, um, and just, you know, exploring data in that regard, historical and projected. Um, but outside of that world, I do think, you know, to be to be a successful investor require, uh, most of our day is reading. Um, I, I would say, so I, I would say, I think most fundamental investors would agree with that. Um, I think where Charlie still stands out and what we've tried to model as well is just the, the, the idea of reading more broadly, right? Most investors spend their time head down reading transcripts, annual filings, earnings reports, all company related or, or sell side, right? Wall street research, et cetera. Um, we try to really follow in, in Charlie's footsteps. So I've, for the last five, six years, I've probably read one to two books a week. And we publish every year a list of everything that we've read and share that. And I think I think what um, I hope what most folks take away from that is, you know, there's a small section on investing, but generally we're just reading and, and trying to learn across disciplines and learn from different areas and connect the dots. And 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 it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting to see how those pieces connect over time. One of the things I find interesting about Charlie Munger is he had a modest upbringing. He went to college on the GI Bill he then started in real estate, is what I understand, and then moved on into investing and other things. Is is he an inspiration to a lot of people on Wall Street, or is he seen as an anomaly? That's that's a good question. Um, I would say he's an inspiration to us. Um, I would say, but I, I think it's still an anomaly, right? So um, I, I'm first generation U.S. My dad came to this country. He was had his 14th birthday on the boat on the way over, opened up his business with $6 of cash in the register, and that was the last $6 he had left. Um, you know, I'm product of a public education, went to a state school and worked my way up, um, Work my way up to where we are today. So he's, he's inspired you in some ways then, or you, at least you've followed in the footsteps in many similar ways. I would say, and we look for that, right? There's a, there's a uh, I'm drawing the blank on, on the source, but one of my favorite sayings um, in business is, is, is chips, chip on shoulders equals chip on product, chip it, chip in pockets, right? So, um, you know, it's the underdog that has something to prove that, it, you know, it's tough to, it's tough to instill that mentality, that drive, that motivation, that hunger, if you grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth. Um, and so we we look to that, you know, we look for that hiring. We look, we think about that building the team. And I think there's just, I think there's a lot to be said for that culture um, as opposed to the more standard, right? Uh, um, you know, more standard path to Wall Street. 
And there, there is a very standard path to Wall Street, which is often a private high school, then followed by an Ivy League college, and then followed by straight into a, a usually a high-end Wall Street co- company. One of the things I find f- fascinating with this is that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett have basically been at the pinnacle of this sort of investment guru status for a long time. Others seem to come and go. Is there anyone who could replace him or, or, or Warren Buffett for that for that matter? Warren Buffett's still alive, so doesn't doesn't need a replacement. But we see a lot of other other people out there. I interviewed Barton Biggs once, and he was very interesting, and he had a lot of interesting things to say. I've interviewed other investors as well. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, there, there are, as you mentioned a couple, there are a handful of investors um, operating today and that have operated over the years with that degree of longevity and success over such a long period of time. Um, and so, and I think you know, some of them are around today and, and, and some of them will continue to be around and some of them will age into that, um, age into that small, small group. Um, I would say what is harder to replace is how open and willing and gracious both Warren and Charlie have been with their time um, and how much they've given back to the investment community. Right. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm feeling you know, I had a sad feeling reading the news this week um, because I have not made it out to Omaha since covid um, but, you know, prior to COVID, we'd try to go out every year and just, you know, sitting in a stadium with however many tens of thousands of people in that room and listening to, you know, two legends of the industry in their 90s, just sit there and take questions from an audience for hour after hour after hour after hour. And then for Munger to do it again, right at the Daily Journal meetings, which has a, a much smaller following, but um, they just, it, it's its tough to find people um, of that nature just willing and, and that enjoy giving back so much. And they both live modestly. Does that also inspire you even more? Because there are plenty of flashy people on Wall Street who like to throw their money around and, and, and state that they are rich, maybe richer than they actually are. Does that modesty really help you find them interesting as well? It certainly does with me. Yeah, and I think it says a lot, right? So I'll, I'll use an example. I'll use an investing example or two different examples, um, right? It, it, it may just be personal upbringing, right, where it's going to resonate with some and to others, it's not as important. But to us, you know, so I'll give an example. We visited two companies and I won't, I won't name either one, but one of them I flew into Beverly Hills, um, walked into their offices, and it just, you know, had the smell of them lighting, lighting money on fire. Um, you can picture the the type of corporate office I'm talking about and the artwork on the walls and the sculptors and just the amount of money. And, you know, I left that meeting and got the same feel from management team in terms of dress and watches. And um, we, we sold the stock that walking out of that meeting. Um, another meeting was a large big box retailer in um, on the West Coast and went in to meet with their CFO and executive management team the 
team looked like it could have been, uh, you know, the, the conference room could have been out of a, it was probably less modest than a public school elementary classroom. Um, you know, slightly, a slight upgrade over folding chairs around a table, nothing on the walls. You know, management team comes in, this is the CFO of a, of a you know, Fortune 500 business, khakis and a polo shirt, you know, that were made by the company and corporate headquarters are attached to one of their stores. Um, tells you a lot about, right, what's important to the business and, and, and how they're treating what is actually shareholder capital. Right, it's not their capital to light on fire with with large corporate offices and and to spend that type of money, um, and so you know, you, you saw that from both Charlie and Munger, right? Just the importance of being good stewards of capital, um, and I think just that humbleness. Um, I think just the humbleness and overall approach to both how they treat their own wealth and think about their own wealth, as well as caring for shareholder shareholder wealth. Um, you know, those two go hand in hand, in our opinion. And that is a great way to leave that. Thank you so much, Christopher Pavis. He's the president and chief investment officer of Broyhill Asset Management. This is Constable Confidential. I'm Simon Constable, and that's it. <laughs>